from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Kyle Kramer, the host of the Earth and Spirit podcast. Before the show, I just wanted to take a minute and ask a favor. The main way we grow the listenership of the podcast is through ratings and reviews. So if you like what you hear and want to help us spread the word about the show, we'd be very grateful if you'd take a quick moment to rate this show on whatever podcast app or platform you use to listen. Thanks so much. Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith is a UK-based psychiatrist and psychotherapist, an avid gardener, and the author of The Well-Gardened Mind, The Restorative Power of Nature. Over her long career in psychotherapy, Sue has seen the power of gardens and nature connection to heal trauma, cultivate mindfulness and spirituality, navigate anxiety, stress, and burnout, and help us become our full embodied human selves. I'm your host, Kyle Kramer, and in this first of a two-part conversation, Sue and I talk about the co-evolution of gardens and humankind and the essential role nature plays in human physical, psychological, and spiritual well-being. Whether you're a gardener or not, I hope you enjoy Sue's powerful, moving reflection on the deep relationship between green nature and human nature. Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith. Welcome to the Earth and Spirit podcast. Oh, Kyle, thank you. I'm delighted to be joining you today. I am delighted too. You and I have a mutual friend in Marianne Welch, and anyone who Marianne connects me with, I know is going to be an amazing person, and that has indeed proven to be the case. And I'm especially excited to talk with you, not only because you have an amazing book and audio book out called The Well-Gardened Mind, The Restorative Power of Nature, which I have savored for the last several months in preparation for this podcast, but also because I think you are one of the quintessentially perfect guests for a podcast named Earth and Spirit. Your, your book touches so deeply and wonderfully on themes of connection to the earth through gardening and through other means. And you as a psychiatrist and uh, a, a person devoted to mental health, you are all about the getting in touch, as I understand it, with, with the life within, the spirit within. So I, I hope that those two themes in various ways can guide this conversation. And I'm really excited to have it with you. Yeah, I'm excited to be having this conversation too. Well, I wanted to start with a question about background, about how you came to write what the UK Sunday Times calls the, the most original gardening book ever, and I believe that. You clearly have a love of gardening. Where did that come from? Well, you know, I didn't always have a love of gardening. Um, and I was really introduced to gardening through my husband, Tom Stewart-Smith, who is now a celebrated landscape designer. When we first married, he was setting out on his career. This is going back 36 years. And he was already a knowledgeable plantsman and a passionate gardener. And I, I had almost a bit of a, I would say, prejudice about gardening. I, I saw it at that stage as a, a form of outdoor housework. You know, I saw it as a bit of a chore. 
<laughs> of course, it can be, and for lots of people, it is. Which is not wrong. <laughs> you know, but I was also determined. Tom loved it, so I wanted to love it. And then we had this remarkable opportunity of creating a garden from scratch, which was about two or three years after we married. Is that the barn garden? It's the barn garden, yep. Okay. And um, we moved to a barn on his family patch of land, and it was surrounded by a wheat field. And it took us quite a while to be able to sort of get the land back and be able to cultivate it ourselves. But we did, and that was the start of a journey, really. For Tom, it was very much about his professional development. And for me, it became a place to unwind, I think, and experiment. I've always loved cooking. And in many ways, that was my way into growing plants. Mm-hmm. I started growing herbs, all sorts of interesting culinary herbs, and then started a vegetable garden, which remains to this day pretty much my my domain. <laughs> Cooking is often a slippery slope to gardening, but it's interesting how Tom somehow managed to get you to be in charge. <laughs> <laughs> in the veg garden, yes. I mean, you know, our garden is now extensive, and mm. um, he is very busy in, <laughs> in the rest of the garden. If I may ask, how many acres or, or hectares are you cultivating? Uh, we have about four acres of garden. Oh my some gosh, that that's a lot of garden. Meadow. Some of that is wildflower meadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not all garden. Some of it's a prairie, but and some of it is, you know, herbaceous borders and yew hedges, hornbeam hedges, box hedges, and so on. So um, it's quite varied. It mm. sounds beautiful. I would love to. I've seen a few, I believe, black and white pictures of it in the book, but it, it sounds just marvelous. Well, you have to come and visit one day, I think. Okay, I, I will do that. <laughs> um, you make a really powerful, profound, necessary point in this book, throughout this book, about the fundamental connection between human nature and green nature, between nature and human nature. You have a quote in your book by Gandhi, uh, which goes, to forget how to dig the earth and to tend the soil is to forget ourselves. And you make the case throughout that we are part and parcel of nature. We always have been. That's, that's deeply embedded in our DNA, our biological and maybe even our spiritual DNA. And obviously, that relationship with nature has evolved or maybe devolved <laughs> over time. And I want I wanted to maybe do a run through uh, our history and prehistory with you to trace back our connections as a species with the natural world. And obviously we began as hunter-gatherers, as you describe, and we eventually became agriculturalists. And I, I myself, as a former organic farmer, I don't think I mentioned that to you, I have a certain degree of ambivalence there uh, around the uh, transition into agriculture, much gained and uh, perhaps some lost as well. So I wonder if, if we might start with these, these early days and maybe you can walk us through how humans became gardeners. Mm, It's a very interesting and, I think, important question. And it preoccupied me quite a lot because when I set out on writing the book, um, you know, most of the material I I could find suggested 
that um, exactly as you described, people were hunter-gatherers first, then they were agriculturalists. So we had the Neolithic Revolution, farming began, and then gardens came later um, because gardens were seen as a sort of less necessary activity. And none of that made sense to me. Oh, so it didn't go hunting, gathering, then gardens, then Of course it did, farms. yeah. No, but if you, read, if you read the history books, say for the history of the garden, they all tell you that, you know, it came after. Um, oh, but that's not true. And it's not true. Of course it's not true because in order for people to grow staple foods, they had to have the skills to cultivate already there. And what I found fascinating looking into current thinking within archaeology is that, it, you know, one, one researcher describes it as a vast middle ground so that there's something called managed foraging, which is at one end of the spectrum, you know, closest to foraging, but moving a bit towards cultivation. Doesn't involve sowing seeds, but involves... Um, maximizing the desirable plants, the availability of the desirable plants in a foraging ground. Mm -hmm. So that might be weeding out poisonous plants. It might be transplanting saplings. It might be diverting water. But there's, there seems to be evidence accruing that people were doing this from, from early, you know, much earlier than we've previously thought. So, you know, they were doing this in the late Paleolithic. And... Um, it's clear from other evidence that the forests of Borneo, for example, in the late Paleolithic, were heavily, heavily cultivated. Right. The other thing that fascinated me were the various theories around how the garden started and that the, the earliest forms of gardening, it seems, were not, people weren't growing food because they needed food. The, these gardens appear in places where there's abundant foraging. So they arise out of other needs needs a need for rare plants, culturally desirable plants, and also probably from some kind of spiritual practice. Mm. You know, it may be a garden dedicated to the gods to return food to the gods, which is what the Maori, traditional Maori gardening is, is about. You know, they have a separate mm -hmm. garden, which is a, a spiritual garden, and then they have the gardens that they take their produce from. So I think the history is, is complex um, and, and it's not about, it's certainly not about staple foods. The first gardens were, were about other kind of cultural, forms of cultural activity. And yet, uh, I mean, that's such a fascinating history and maybe we don't want to go there, but do you have any thoughts or feelings about how agriculture took over from both managed foraging and gardening and what ramifications that had for our cultural and our spiritual lives and, and just the, the way we interact with nature. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not necessarily clear and that in different parts of the world it may have been different. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of interest at the moment in the um, probably the earliest place where agriculture appeared around uh, Syria and Turkey. And it's around this very extraordinary ruined temple called Gobleki Tepe, which was built by hunter-gatherers. And that's, that was a surprise to archaeologists to realize that something so early, um, I think it's about 11,000 uh, years ago, but I don't, don't quote me on that. And one of the theories about why farming arose there 
is to do with the construction of this temple, that there was simply a need to feed huge numbers of people working on building this temple, which would have taken years and years to build, probably decades, and was clearly a bit like Stonehenge, you know, a gathering place for people from all sorts of different tribes who would travel quite a long way for maybe an annual gathering, a solstice gathering. I don't think we know, but it was a religious site. It was an early religious site. So spirituality in that sense may have led to the first farming as well. That is fascinating. I did not understand those connections at all. And uh, those, those are amazing. And, and you make that point in, in the book that there is a spiritual aspect to gardening, that if gardening is deep in our biological DNA, as I mentioned, uh, it, especially if, if some of these earliest forms of gardening and farming were in connection with the building of temples and other kind of religious practice, that, that there's this spiritual strand as well. In what ways is gardening, or, or perhaps more broadly, connection to nature more generally, a, a spiritual practice? And, and before you dive into that, I, I wanted to share some thoughts that have been rattling around my head lately after listening to a podcast, uh, the Emerald podcast with Joshua Michael Shry, where he has this episode entitled, um, Animism is Normative Consciousness, where he makes the point that basically 99.9% of human history uh, that we saw the natural world as being uh, animated, uh, alive, and suffused with some sort of spiritual presence. And obviously, particularly Western religious traditions might look very askance at that. Uh, certainly the, uh, uh, the Reformation didn't, uh, didn't help uh, in that regard, I think, uh, in the kind of mechanization of society. But I do wonder what might have been the early religious connections and how do you think that's evolved such that, like, what does that look like, at least potentially, in the modern area? Well, I think... Um Animism, I suspect, was absolutely vital to our hunter-gatherer forebears' survival. Really? How so? I do think so, because I think the natural world is alive, and they needed to tune in to its aliveness and read the signs, just in terms of uh, fully respecting its separate life, I think. Hmm. And they tuned into it using empathy and identification in terms of actually getting very close to it to understand how best to survive or how to hunt certain animals. Um, I think, you know, early hunting, I I think, was probably quite a spiritual practice. Mm. And when you look at ethnography and um, studies into rituals, there are so many different rituals around honoring the earth, giving something back to the earth, you know, the first few, first fruits rituals, giving the first fruits to the gods and so on, which are fundamentally, I think, based around a sense of gratitude mm. that um, we have taken something from the earth and we need to either honor that or put something back. Sorry to editorialize, but wow, we've come a long way, haven't we? And perhaps not in the right direction. <laughs> no, I think we've lost that sense of, absolutely, you're right. Yeah. We have lost that sense of, yeah, if we if we take from the natural world, we need to replenish it in some way, and also not 
approach it with a sense of entitlement that it's there for us to strip and, um, you know, exploit. Uh, that, you know, we are only one of many, many life forms in this complicated mm. web of life. And I think that's what, you know, just going, moving more generally to the spiritual sense in, in the garden that many people experience. I think it is fundamentally about that feeling of being connected to something much larger than yourself um, and being part of something, but not being, uh, as it were, the controller of it or um, even the most important element in it. And, and I think that's, it's such a good antidote to our, our sense of narcissism <laughs> gardening, I think, because we're constantly reminded, I am anyway, you know, through the, whether it's the weather or the slugs or the, uh, you know, the various pests um, or just things that don't behave quite how you, plants that seem to do their own thing. That you know that that this is a I see it as a as a relationship. It's all about a communication that's going on, in which I have to respond to what what plants are doing, and it's not um, yeah. It, it, this is not a one way relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that sense of connectedness is crucial, and people can of course garden without that. You know, gardening like many activities can take different forms. And for some people, it is all about power and control and domination, mm -hmm. and often sometimes using you know very destructive kind of chemicals. Um, so not really taking care of the of the wider context in, in which a garden might be placed. I'd love to unpack this idea of control a little bit because the image that came up for me was uh, when you said you know, some folks garden with an excessive amount of control and domination. Obviously, the image you shared about using chemicals and other violent means to control pests and weeds. But I, one of the images that popped into my head was also that of a, of a, I'll just say it, overly manicured, say, a, a French garden. And I just, I wonder if, if that also feels to you uh, like a, a bit too leaning too heavily on the notion of control. Maybe I'm just trying to console myself that my own gardens are always a, 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 a pretty big <laughs> mixture of, of weeds and crop. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's also something about how we need to garden now in the 21st century. Mm. And, you know, those the French gardens that you're alluding to, they were about a show of power. They were attached to large chateaus. Um, mm -hmm. And they were very much about taming, taming nature. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I think they're fascinating and they're wonderful to visit. But it would be quite worrying to be creating that now in this time of biodiversity crisis and, and so on. So I think it's terribly important that our aesthetic does shift towards something that is um, really about working with nature. and supporting insects and pollinators and also the you, know, you mentioned you were an organic farmer before you know the life of the soil mm -hmm. um i read recently i think in the new scientist that that soil scientists have have just you know they've just just really discovered that there's a whole other level of life in the soil that hadn't been documented before and that there's more biodiversity in our soils than 
in anything else on the planet. The soil is the most biodiverse thing there is. Or at least it has that potential. I've been in cornfields in Indiana that, that I wouldn't call particularly biodiverse. Absolutely. It has that potential. Yeah. No, absolutely. If your soil is turning to, to dust, then of course it doesn't have that. Mm. And that's a serious problem. Uh, it's a problem that, you know, we're facing in different places all around the world, really. Yeah. And it is about that neglect of what the natural world needs to thrive. And it's terribly short-sighted because, you know, we need nature to thrive in order to thrive ourselves. Right. Thank you for that segue because you are a psychiatrist, a mental health provider, and I wonder how you began to see and understand the connections between gardening and mental health. We've already sketched out the case, I think, that to be truly and fully human means to own and acknowledge our connection to the natural world. Can you put a, maybe a finer point on that in regard specifically to the mental health effects of nature connection or the lack of nature connection? Yeah, I mean, in terms of my own, my own journey, might start there, I think. Yeah, and I should interrupt to say, you share so many wonderful stories and anecdotes in this book. I just want our listeners to be aware that it is a wonderful storytelling book. So f- also feel free to share any anecdote that, that you might wish, whether it's personal or, or of someone who showed up in the book. Uh, yeah, thank you, Carl. So my first phase of gardening, I would say, was all about productivity and growing vegetables and cooking and so on. Oh, me too. Guilty as charged. Absolutely. Um, and then it was a bit later on, actually at a point when I'd become a consultant, I held a senior role in an NHS hospital running a, a, a district psychotherapy service. And we had various periods of real stress with you know, proposed cuts to services that I had to fight against, um, yeah, things like that, which were really hard to kind of deal with. And I began to notice that if I had a weekend when I hadn't got out into the garden, the stress was accumulating so much more. So I think that was the beginning for me of waking up to the kind of replenishing, kind of restorative side to gardening, mm-hmm. literally feeling my mind, the sort of jangle of thoughts in my head would somehow settle down uh, and I would feel sort of returned to myself in some way. Mm. I would feel more grounded in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, we now know, and I mean, I, I do um, cite quite a lot of the science in the book as well as the stories, that there are physiological effects of being out in nature. And of course, that's not exclusive to, to gardening. But, you know, just being in green space lowers your heart rate, lowers your blood pressure. Within about 20 minutes, levels of the stress hormone cortisol come down. And other studies have shown, for example, benefits to cognition. And also other intriguing benefits that when people spend time um, amongst trees or in a garden, for example, or even with indoor plants, that they're shifted towards being a little bit more empathetic, Hmm. a bit more generous or open. Um, So there are so many different levels on which um, the natural world, and we are talking about the sort of green nature, maybe arboretums, gardens, this kind of, we're not talking about um, majestic mountains. They they offer us other things or or deserts, you know. Um, But we're talking about kind of, I think the kind of setting that really signaled to our hunter-gatherer 
ancestors that this was a, a flourishing place. This was a place where there was water, there was greenery, there was likely to be abundant food. Because mm-hmm. we also know that these kind of rather beautiful settings trigger release of our endorphins, mm-hmm. our natural opioids, which of course make us feel very relaxed. And you know, for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, they'd, they'd have responded to that. I think, oh, this is a good place to be. You know, they wouldn't have felt um, uh, jumpy and, oh, I better move on from here. They'd have felt sort of happy and relaxed and able to linger a bit. And I think that's what gardens do for us, really. I completely and fully agree. And a related question here, Sue, has to do with acknowledging that on the one hand, it's important for our minds to be in gardens or in connection with nature. But you also have this wonderful phrase uh, on page 35 that the mind needs to be gardened too. Mm. And that, that sounds like not the exact same thing. So what does that mean, that the mind needs to be gardened? No, that, that is something different. And I think um, at every level, the mind needs to be gardened. Uh, I write about the cells in our brain called the microglia cells, mm-hmm. sometimes known as the constant gardeners of the brain. <laughs> so at a physical, microscopic physical level, our brains are gardened every night when we sleep. Uh, the microglia have a little patch of brain um, that they tend. They, they weed it, they prune it, they fertilize it. Um, they basically replenish it. Oh, that is such a beautiful image. <laughs> Go, microglial cells. <laughs> Absolutely. It's very necessary to, to brain health. Mm-hmm. But I'm also intimating um, about how we cultivate our own minds, really. And that involves kind of, I think, recognizing what nourishes us, um, dealing with, uh, if you like, the things that may be poisoning us at some level emotionally. So sorting out what's going on. So what's good for us and what's not so good for us. And working out our relationships too. Mm. And I think I think sometimes, for me certainly, and I know for many people, that, that sort of meditative time in the garden, doing, um, you know, whether it's weeding or sowing seeds, um, planting out starts, you know, small seedlings. Those kind of tasks enable us to kind of, with a lack of self-consciousness, kind of go into ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing sometimes how, you know, you finish a bout of gardening like that and you realize that something's, something's got sorted out inside you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of been a parallel process, if you like. Right. And without you necessarily intending it, it the, the garden was working on you as you were working on the garden. Somehow the garden's been working on you. The, I think the, the, the sort of mindful quality of the work's been, been you know, having, playing a part. You've been relaxed. You're in a safe setting, a protected setting. I think that enables us to, to go sometimes quite deep into ourselves. Um, and I think that's very important. And I, It's really about giving ourselves time to do that. Gardening isn't the only way to do that. There are many ways to do it. But I think for many people, it's quite an accessible way to do it. 
Have you done any work? You mentioned mindfulness, and my ears perk up because, of course, we're a, a mindfulness center here in Louisville, Kentucky. And you'd mentioned earlier how the kind of neurophysiology is affected by gardening, as mindfulness also affects prefrontal cortex, et cetera, kind of makes physiological changes in the brain. Have you done any work around the actual like mindfulness practices and their connection with gardening or, or nature connection? I know that um, some of the research projects I visited for the book incorporate mindfulness into the gardening program. Mm-hmm. They seem like just natural fits. They are natural fits, absolutely. And I think it's also very important in the world that we live in today where people are often very liable to being distracted, um, even if they haven't got their phone with them. <laughs> no. We've got into that habit of kind of, you know... Um, and I think just that discipline of spending time in nature, tuning in to the noises around you, the sounds of the wind in the trees, um, the birds singing, you know, the smells from the plants, maybe, maybe lavender, rosemary, whatever, aromatic plants maybe around you, feeling the ground beneath your feet, all these things, they really help create that vital sense of connectedness. Mm. Well, we have, I think, made a fantastic case that everyone needs to be gardening in some form or fashion, if uh, uh, in whatever ways they can. And I, I think, why don't we, I'm looking at our time here, why don't we wrap up part one? And I'd love in part two for us to have a further conversation about how uh, you know the the degree of disconnection we experience in the modern world and how that can be healed and and how gardens can play a part of that but before we close up this first episode sue i just want to mention again the book is the well gardened mind the restorative power of nature it is available also as an audiobook and is there a quick way folks can get in touch? Obviously, those two are available in hard copy and audiobook wherever books are sold. Is there a, a way that folks can connect more deeply with you and your work, particularly? They can find me on Instagram and they can find me on my website. Okay. And we'll put links to those in the show notes. Uh, real quick, what is, your, what is your website? It's www.suestuartsmith.com. All right. Want to make sure that our, in case... So no hyphen... Got it. Well, in case uh, there are some foolish listeners out there who don't listen to part two of this uh, good conversation, I, I want them to make sure they, they can still find you and find your wonderful book. Uh, thank you so much for part one. I'll, I'll see you in part two, Sue. Lovely. See you later. The Earth and Spirit podcast is a production of the Earth and Spirit Center, a nonprofit interfaith spirituality center in Louisville, Kentucky devoted to cultivating a flourishing world through contemplative spiritual practices, engaged work for social justice, and environmental care. Joe Brown is our audio engineer, and I'm your host, Kyle Kramer. To learn more about the Earth and Spirit Center, please visit our website, www.earthandspiritcenter.org. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic.